Well, as you may know, we have a uh, pastoral internship here at Delray Baptist Church. You get a group of guys who come in every year for nine months to read a ton of books together, write a bunch of papers, have vigorous discussions together. One of my favorite weeks uh, that they do during the pastoral internship is something called Theological Tears Week. T-I-E-R-S, not tear. They're not crying theological tears, though maybe at times from paper writing and book reading, they do that. But the brothers are given almost 150 statements uh, on a spreadsheet, and they have to rank the importance of these statements. So they get these 150 statements, and uh, they could rank it number one. You have to believe that in order to be a Christian. Like if, you, if you don't believe in, in what that statement is saying, you're probably not a believer. Or you could rank it with another number that represents that you have to believe that statement in order to be in a healthy church together. So, so if, if you disbelieved that statement, I, I don't know that we would be able to be in the same church together. <clears throat> another ranking, another number would represent that you can believe that statement and be a Christian, but it just means that we'll probably be in, in separate churches apart from one another and so on. You, you get the exercise. There's 150 statements, a ranking system, and then we all get together and kind of hash it out. Who ranked what with what number? Why did you see that as so important? Why did you see that as not so important? And we uh, go along through all 150 statements. Just give you some examples. Some of these statements are very serious theological matters. Others might seem like not so much. However, all of the things on this list are there because these are things that we've seen cause division among Christians. So example, salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. To believe that, as I see people putting up numbers, uh, believe that to be a Christian, is that something we can agree to disagree on? Uh, Christians should be vegans. We've seen it divide people. Uh, the Bible is without error, an errancy of Scripture. Christians can watch R-rated movies. Mature Christians will speak in tongues. Christians must boycott corporations with anti-Christian agendas. Jesus was born of a virgin. Christians can listen to secular music. Christians can disagree on the age of the earth. Churches can be multi-site. One of my favorites, Christians can do Pokemon. I don't even know if I'm saying that right. Did he do poke? I don't know. There's 150 of those. Necessary to become a Christian and therefore something that should be guarded with all vigilance by us, a hill that we will die on, or something that doesn't matter at all. Something that is consequential, but maybe it's something that we can agree to disagree on and be in the same church. How do you think you would do at such an exercise if you were in the room with the interns? For some Christians, everything is a hill to die on. They have one speed, and it's everything is a gospel issue. I will fight you over all of that. Everything is a gospel issue. Other Christians dial all the way back, and they're like, why be so divisive? Can't we all just not step on each other's toes and agree to disagree? And as long as you believe in God, right, kind of all the other stuff kind of works itself out. 
we need to develop these muscles. What is error and what is not? What are the essentials of the faith and what are the non-essentials of the faith? What must be guarded and contended over and what are other things that we can have charity in the church? Well, our text in Acts chapter 15 this morning is going to give an example in the early church of something just like that happening. If you're just here with us this morning visiting and we're going through a series in the book of Acts, we find ourselves in Acts chapter 15 this morning. So if you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 15. We'll be in the first 35 verses. But we are going to see an example in the early church where there was uh, disagreement, discernment was needed, discussion over a topic that was dividing people in their day. Acts 15, 1 through 35. My encouragement for us this morning is this, contend where you must, show charity where you can. Contend where you must, show charity where you can. As we do that, I want to, here's a kind of a three-point outline uh, that we'll use to, to look at this text together. We must protect the, the purity of the gospel of grace, right? So contend where you must, show charity where you can. Kind of three exhortations inside of that are these. Be cautious, be clear, be charitable. So be cautious, be clear, be charitable. And we'll see those in the text here in Acts 15. Be cautious with gospel deviations. We know what the gospel is and we see something deviating from that. We must have eyes to see that and to recognize it. So be cautious with gospel deviation. Be clear with gospel essentials. What are those things that we hold on to and that we will contend for? And then be charitable with gospel allowances, gospel non-essentials. All right, so number one, be cautious. You can look at your copy of God's Word, Acts chapter 15. I'll read the text, verses 1 through 35. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others who were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of God, or hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And all the assembly fell silent. And they listened 
to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them, uh, take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. And the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers were the apostles and the elders to the brothers who were of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and to send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Farewell. So they were sent off and they went down to Antioch and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. first exhortation this morning is to be cautious. Have in mind the first five verses that we read there in Acts chapter 15. <clears throat> now, if you look back at the end of, of chapters 13 and 14, uh, chapters 13 and 14, we saw Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey that went out where God had done some amazing things through them and they ended up back down at their home church in Antioch, where they gave a full report of the work that God had accomplished through them. And if you want to see kind of a summary of how they summarize the whole thing, look at the end of chapter 14. This is how they summarize it. They, part of what they said is, is that they declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. So note that this, this is a period of something new happening and some new frontiers are being breached and the gospel is going further and further and further into new communities. And so that when they summarize their report to the church, church at Antioch, the way they do it is they, God did some amazing things through us and he, th what he was doing was opening a door of faith to the Gentiles. And so Luke summarizes what they shared with their church and that's the big picture. Uh, amazing things that God did, especially how the gospel was going forth to the Gentiles. 
So as we're entering into Acts 15, realize that the gospel is advancing, the church is expanding, and the faith of these Jewish followers of Christ is going further and further into non-Jewish communities. And so where that happens, where the faith of these Jewish background believers is being shared into non-Jewish communities, the situation is ripe for some conflicts to start to happen. For these people with one cultural background going into uh, people sharing the gospel with people from another cultural background, there's a situation where we are going to have some, uh, some disagreements and some, some issues that might come up between the Jewish background folks and those who are from other cultures. And that's exactly what happens here in the text. And so as they are, are they go, uh, they're back down in Antioch and they're going about their normal life, chapter 15, verse 1. As they're doing that, and, and remember at the end of chapter 14, it says they spent no little time with the disciples. So some time has passed, but then some uh, men come from Jerusalem, from Judea. And they come down and they start to teach the church that these non-Jewish converts to, to the Christian faith needed to be circumcised in order to be saved. So as, as a requirement, in order to truly be part of the covenant community, these people, these Gentiles who were coming to faith in Jesus, that wasn't enough. They also needed to be circumcised. And it's not just about that one issue. Look at verse 5. These guys were teaching not just that the Gentile converts needed to be circumcised, but it said, order them that they should keep the law of Moses. Be circumcised, but also keep, keep these other laws as well. You see that borne out later in the text where they say, you're putting a burden on them that none of us could keep. Right, so, so it's not just circumcision, but it's the keeping of the law of Moses. But that's not the gospel that has been believed and taught by the apostles. And so in verse 2, if you look there in your text, Paul and Barnabas kind of sniff this out. You see, they, they hear what these guys from Jerusalem are teaching, and they say, well, wait a minute, that ain't right. <laughs> that's not what we've been believing. That's not what we've been teaching. Now, that's important for us to see for a proper understanding and a proper interpretation of Acts chapter 15. We'll get to the trip to Jerusalem in just a minute. We're going we're we're to address that uh, in a few minutes. But note, Paul and Barnabas don't feel like they need to go get something from Jerusalem that they don't already know and believe. It's going to be important for our interpretation of this passage together. This, the trip to Jerusalem isn't going to reveal anything new to Paul and Barnabas. They already know the gospel. They're already preaching the gospel. There is nothing of essential gospel significance that will come out of the Jerusalem meeting. The meeting in Jerusalem is not where they come up with any sort of a doctrine. The meeting in Jerusalem isn't where they invent any sort of new doctrine. Not at all. There is debate down in Antioch specifically because there is a body of belief that everybody has been teaching and believing, and now you have error being entered into that. Right? There's debate because there's people entering into this early church context and saying something different than what has always been believed. And those who know the truth spot it. The reason there's debate that ends up being discussed in Jerusalem is because there's a true gospel that now you have people deviating from it. And they'll get together and they say, wait, wait, wait a minute. That's not what we believe. This is what we believe, just to be clear. We're reaffirming what the truth is once they get up to Jerusalem. Now, I, I say all that. You may wonder why I'm making a big issue of this. This is really big in our day. I'll give you an example. I was, uh, when I was in seminary, I was asked to, to be on a uh, world religions panel at the University of North Texas. 
and uh, there, was a, uh, uh, there was a Hindu, a Jew, a Muslim, an atheist, and me, Christian guy. Sounds like the start of a bad joke. Uh, and so uh, we're there and we all get to present kind of the foundations of our faith and what we believe. And, and at the end, uh, there was the Q&A and there was a girl, there was a girl like staring daggers at me the entire time. Even other people were talking, she's just staring at me the whole time. And as soon as they opened for questions, her hand shot up and I was like, all right, I know, like she's coming for me. Um, and sure enough, they call on this girl, this young lady, and uh, she said, I have a question for the Christian. <laughs> and they're like, all right, uh, they passed the mic to me and she goes, what about Nicaea? I was like, what about it? <laughs> and she goes, you know, what happened at Nicaea? Do you agree with Nicaea? I'm like, yeah, I think so. I, you know, yeah, I'm for it. I'm for Nicaea. And I was like, I'm not sure what you're asking. Well, first, because you're not asking anything. Uh, and she goes, well, it wasn't until the Council of Nicaea that Christians decided that Jesus was God. I was like, ah, oh, okay. You've been reading the Da Vinci Code. Uh, and so, no, that's not what happened at all. So, but you'll hear that. It wasn't until the fourth century in 325 at the Council of Nicaea that Christians finally said, we think Jesus is God. Let us put it in a statement. That's not how councils work. That's not how creeds work. The reason, and you know the reason why there wasn't an extra biblical creed saying that Jesus is divine before 325? Because that's what everybody thought. That's what everybody believed already. It wasn't until this guy named Arius comes along and says, no, 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 Jesus is actually the supreme creation of the Father, not equal to the Father, that everybody's like, whoa, 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 that's not what we've been teaching. Let's get everybody together in Nicaea just to be clear. No, Arius, you're wrong. This is what Christians have always believed everywhere. You see the difference there? That's what's happening in this text. They're not, they're not inventing something, but, but be aware of that because sloppy historians and university professors are going to love to point out things like that, to make a lot of money off saying things like that, that Christians developed these things later on, and that's what is happening with these creeds and these confessions and these statements. That's not at all what's happening. And so in Acts chapter 15, Paul and Barnabas are going to go up to Jerusalem to have this discussion. But they are well aware of what Jesus taught. They are well aware of what all the churches believed and had been proclaiming since the earliest days. That's why there's debate. That's why these guys come down and they start debating with him. Like, that's not what we believe. And so verse 2, that's why there's that, that, that dissension and debate. And then Paul and Barnabas, they go to bat for the true gospel. And there's enough clamor about it, though, that the church at Antioch says, okay, we're going to send Paul and Barnabas up to Jerusalem uh, to, to try to settle this and figure this out because they're like, wait, 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 you guys are getting this from Peter's church? You're already getting this from James's church? Paul and Barnabas are like, listen, we know James and Peter. That's not what they believe. Let's go up and settle it. If it were today, it would be a phone call or like a subtweet angrily. Like, I can't believe what Jerusalem is believing. So they go up, they send a delegation. We are going to go to Jerusalem to hammer this out and to talk about this. And they go to check in. And so verse 3, you see they do. And true to form, on their way there, I love on their, on their way to Jerusalem, uh, the second half of verse 3, they, they pass through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles. So by the way, that's another piece of evidence that Paul and Barnabas aren't confused at all on what the gospel is. On their way, they're not on their way to a council where they're kind of figuring out like, well, we need to go up to Jerusalem so they can tell us what is true and what the gospel is. Now, on their way there, they're telling everybody what God has already done among the Gentiles, that they believed in the, uh, the gospel, that you uh, trust Christ by grace through faith and you're saved. 
with nothing else thrown on top of that. And so on the way, they're spreading that message to everybody they see and no sense looking to some power structure in Jerusalem to deliver truth to them. They know it. They preach it on the way to Jerusalem. Church, may we be cautious with deviations from the gospel. In the same way that they are here, they have caution whenever things pop up on the radar and they say that is not right. That is not the truth. Make no mistake, such errors are still around today. There are Christians who will say, you must be baptized in order to be saved. Entire denomination, the International Church of Christ will teach that. You must be baptized in our church in order to be saved. Baptized somewhere else, not saved. Not baptized, not saved. You must be baptized in our church in order to be saved. That is a heretical view. That is a non-orthodox view. It's not what the Bible teaches. There are Christians today who teach that Christians must observe the Jewish calendar, observing Passover, Rosh Hashanah, the Day of Atonement. There are Christians today who level the charge of heresy at other Christians for using a different Bible translation. There are Christians who feel that speaking in tongues is a sign of salvation, that if you're truly saved, that's what you'll do. There are examples in our day of what we see happening here where people say, no, no, it's not Jesus, it's Jesus plus. It's Jesus plus baptism, it's Jesus plus Jewish stuff, it's Jesus plus some uh, sign in your life. We must be cautious with deviations from the true gospel. These still exist today. And the way that we get there is not necessarily by spending all of our time checking out what everybody is saying and believing out there, and, and trying to, to, to make sure we know everything that every corner of the internet is believing and saying and teaching, the way that we get there to be cautious about what truth is and to stand for that is by immersing ourselves in what the truth is. It, it, it's by talking uh, about the, the grace of God in Christ and our evangelism so frequently that that, that is constantly the, the message on our lips, like it was for Paul and Barnabas right here, that when another message comes in, you say, no, no, that's not right. This thing that I've been preaching steadily in my life is what the true gospel message is of Christianity. It's by immersing ourselves in relationships and discipleship in this church where we are constantly building one another and encouraging one another in what the truth is. So that it's not just me out there on a limb somewhere, but it's us together, linked arms, encouraging and exhorting and praying for one another and studying scripture together and reading good books together so that when this error comes in, we all can spot it immediately. It's enjoying good conversations about the gospel of grace in our friendships so that we are constantly around our dinner tables and in our backyards and uh, at our gyms and uh, at our places of work, uh, encouraging and building one another up in what the truth is. This is certainly the way of the early church and why Paul and Barnabas spotted immediately and said, no, 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 that can't be what James and Peter are teaching. Let's go check. So be cautious. Number two, be clear. Be clear. If you look at back in verse 6, They make the decision to, to, to go, and so the, the apostles and the elders, they, they gather together to consider this matter. Verse 7, after there had been much debate, Peter stands up and speaks, and so they make their way to Jerusalem. They gather together to consider the matter at hand. 
Again, there's a, there's a, a, a spirited debate that happens. Note, though, that the debate isn't among the apostles. There, there's nothing in the text that makes us think that they got to Jerusalem and all the apostles are disagreeing and debating this matter. Every time you see the word debate there and dissension and discussion, that is between these Jewish false teachers and what the elders and the apostles believed. We don't get any indication in the text that it's actually the apostles who are unsure about this. Now, they're solid on what the gospel is. You'll see them all stand up here in a minute and give testimony to it. So as Luke is recounting the story here in verses uh, 7 and following, he actually, he's going to give three witnesses. He's going to call three witnesses to the stand. So Peter's going to get up. He's going to give a, a little speech about what he uh, thinks is going on. Then Paul and Barnabas are going to get up. And then James is going to get up. So let's look at those three witnesses that are called to the stand that Luke records for us. The first is Peter in verses 7 through 11. So Peter reminds them of what happened in Acts chapter 2. If you note there, when Peter starts to speak, he says, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. So he's just going back to chapter 2 and say, you, you remember what happened there, that it was God's decision that I would start to proclaim the gospel and that these people would hear it from all over the place, from all kinds of different nations uh, that will that, be around. People are going to hear this gospel. They're going to respond to that, and they're going to believe. They're going to be saved by turning from their sins and trusting in Christ, which he says they, they, that they should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. So when that happened, when, I, when Peter says, when I was back at Pentecost, when I preached the gospel, these Gentiles, these other people from everywhere, they, they started to believe by the, 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 the same gospel that we've been talking about. They heard the gospel and they believed and they were given the Holy Spirit just as what happened with us. Peter's argument is that these Gentiles were saved. They heard, they responded, and they were saved. That's why he said they were given the Holy Spirit. God's not going to give the Holy Spirit if somebody's not a Christian. And so there's no, there's no gap in there where, okay, they were saved, and, and then they went and got circumcised, and then God gave them the Holy Spirit. They were saved, and then they went and observed some festival or feast, and then God gave them the Holy Spirit. Peter's argument here is that they heard the gospel, they believed, it was a Spirit-empowered belief, and, and, and God gave the Spirit. That's it. No other stuff kind of thrown in there. No Jesus plus anything. No by grace through faith plus anything. That's the argument that he's making in verse 8. So he says, then how are you going to come along now and say that it's necessary to do all this law stuff in order to be saved? No, no, we're all saved in the same way. Which is what he establishes in the next three verses, verses 9, 10, and 11. Verse 9, and he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. So he's dealing with them in the same way that he dealt with anybody else, cleansing hearts by faith. And verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. It's God, God's grace that rescues any of us. Paul will write in Ephesians chapter 2, it's by grace through faith that you are saved. That's the same thing he's saying here. It's God's grace that's going to save any of us, and it's by faith. God's cleansed our hearts by faith. It is interesting in verse 11 when he says that uh, they will be saved, or I'm sorry, we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ just as they will. A Jew under the law would be like, you got that order flipped. <laughs> 
They say, they're going to be saved like we will. He says, no, no, we're going to be saved just like they will. And what he's doing there is he's pointing not just to the initial salvation, but to a, he says, we will be saved. The Bible, when it speaks of salvation, will certainly talk about an initial kind of uh, declaration of, of uh, righteousness over us as we trust in Christ and we are saved, we are justified. The Bible certainly speaks of it that way, but there's also a, a future final um, fulfillment of that where we're finally and fully completely saved and in the presence of Christ forever. That's what he's talking about here. He's saying, no, 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 we will all be saved, not just initially in our justification, but finally in our glorification. We believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, just as they will. From first to last, it's grace. That's Peter's argument here, from first to last, from the beginning to the end, for all of us, it's grace, 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 grace. That's the message. We are, from first to last, we're called and saved and kept and guarded by grace through faith. Saved initially and saved finally by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the good news of Christianity. And if you add to that, verse 10, if you add to that, Peter says, you are putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear. The idea of testing God has Old Testament background to it. It's a way of talking about unbelief. On a number of occasions, Israel knew of God's goodness. They knew of what God desired. They knew uh, uh, of God's uh, presence and his love for them, and yet they rebelled against that and were found to be testing God in their unbelief. And so Peter here says that, that we know what true salvation is, but if you add stuff to it, you're testing God. It's a sign of unbelief about what God has said salvation is. So why place this burden on them? He says, none of you, not you, not your daddy, not your granddaddy, now, your great-granddaddy, none of you have been able to keep this law. Nobody's been able to do it. That's why the gospel is so great. And yet you're going to require these Gentiles to keep the law that you were never able to keep? Are you out of your minds? Church, I just want us to bask in the glorious light of the gospel of grace. True religion, Christianity, true religion isn't a thing of burden but of blessing. Not, not, not God trying to weigh you down, but Christ taking your burden upon himself to free you from the heavy weight of trying to earn favor before him, to free you from the heavy weight of trying to earn and do and attain to be good enough for God to save. Free you from trying to attain to a level of, of savable spirituality through your knowledge or through your religious actions. None of that. Even God's commandments, God's commandments that he gives to us aren't because he wants something from us, but because he wants something for us. And he knows the way that is good. And so he, he gives us, yeah, he gives us do's and don'ts. He gives us rules. He gives us those things. Not because he's like, I, he's this taskmaster who says, I want you to obey. I want you to jump through these hoops if you're going to please me. No, he knows that we're going we're gonna to do things that are going to harm us. Uh, we always locate uh, uh, joy and, and, and paths of pain. And he knows that. And so he gives us commands. And this is the way. This is what's good for you. That's the goodness of Christianity, that we are saved not by anything that we do, but by grace through faith in him. And that's the glorious gospel of grace. If you're here and you're not a, a Christian, 
We're so glad that you're with us. And I just want you to know, I don't know what your religious experience has been like, what kind of church is, if any church you've ever been in. But the message of Christianity is that we, we do obey as Christians, but not as, a, not as a function of trying to earn God's favor, to earn God's love. No, it's because God loves us, because God has shown his favor on us in Christ that he changes our hearts as we turn from our sins and trust in Jesus. And then, yeah, we want to obey because we, we, we want to worship him. We want to please him. We, we know that his ways are good and his ways are right. And if we ever flip that and, and have that, that obedience leading to salvation, that is not the message of Christianity. Come to the Christ of the Bible who, who, who frees you from the heavy burden and the heavy yoke of trying to do and earn, to believe in Jesus. I, I can't save myself. Truth, truth is not found by me looking inward. In fact, that's the problem. But looking up to him and falling at him and saying, he is the way, he is the truth, he is the life. Jesus is the only way for me to be saved. That, that is something you've never done. We invite you this morning to linger with us and have those conversations about what that might mean in your life. Well, after Peter's done, he, he, he kind of lays all of this out. It's by grace through faith. You're adding a burden onto them. He, uh, he's kind of just kind of landing all these punches. And then uh, in verse 12, the room just goes silent. And then the second witnesses take the stand. It's hard to argue with what Peter just laid out. And then the next witnesses step up. It's Paul and Barnabas. Now, Luke doesn't record the, the details of everything that Paul and Barnabas say here. He only says that they, they talk about all the things that God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so what Paul, the function of Paul and Barnabas stepping up as witnesses is to, is to really just say a yes and amen to everything Peter just said. So Peter just laid out that this is what the gospel is. It's by grace through faith. Uh, it's not through the keeping of law. And, and even that's true for the Jews. That's true as the gospel goes into Gentile lands, that that's what the gospel is. And Paul and Barnabas step up and like, yeah, guys, we've seen it. So we'll give you firsthand testimony from the, 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 the mission's frontier that that's actually what's happening out there. It's, it's not law. It's not all this kind of stuff. We're, we're seeing God do some crazy things, and it's not by law. It's by the free grace uh, of Christ that God offers us. That's what we've seen. And so they step up as kind of saying yes and amen to Peter's testimony and sharing what they've seen as they've been on their trips around the the region taking the gospel to the ends of the earth. But it is interesting that Paul will write later in Ephesians, I, I talked about this already, that Paul will write, uh, for by grace, Ephesians chapter two, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's a very well-known verse. Uh, some of you even have that memorized. But do you know what that launches? Paul into right after he gives that verse. It's by grace you are saved, right? It's, it's, it's by grace through faith that you're saved, not a result of work so that nobody may boast. What that launches Paul into is this. Therefore, so right after that great verse about salvation, by grace through faith, Paul says this. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So Paul says that this is this idea of the, the, the uh, salvation by grace through faith. And then he says, I want you to remind you Gentile believers that at one point you had these Jews calling you uh, the, the uncircumcision 
But what God, and, and, and you, were, you were separated, you were alienated, you didn't have any of this kind of stuff. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. And he has made both one, both of us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. And so Paul is showing, in, in the book of Ephesians chapter 2, He's, he's making an argument there that God is taking these disparate groups of people. These people have so many things that are not in common. And in Christ, that is our unity. In Christ, he's bringing both of those people together, Jews and non-Jews alike, through this one message of trusting Christ by grace through faith. That's what saves everybody. And that's what brings us all together. Christ destroys the, 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 the walls that we put up between one another and brings us all in unity under him into one body in the church. Well, after they're done, so those are the first two witnesses. Peter gets up and delivers his message of what the gospel is. Paul and Barnabas get up and say, that's what we saw on the mission field. Verse 13, the mic is finally passed to the third witness, James. Verses 13 and following. See there in your text, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that, that's a, a, a version of Peter's uh, Aramaic name. So he's talking about when he says Simeon there, he's talking about Peter. Has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take them from a people for, uh, to take, them from a, uh, take from them a people for his name. So James gets up and begins his address. James has become the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And he echoes what Peter says in verse 14. He says, yeah, Simeon, Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles. And he says, what, what Peter outlined for you, this is the, the contribution that James is going to make, what Peter outlined for you is the same thing that the Hebrew Scripture said as well. That's why he says in the next verse, he says, uh, and, with the, uh, with, and with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. Now, he's going to quote Amos there. The quote that you have in your text is a quote from the book of Amos. But what, he, what he, he's saying, this is, he could have picked any number of prophets to make this point. He says, the, the prophets agree with this. Now, he's going to quote Amos, but th this was the message of the Old Testament too. So he quotes from the Old, uh, Old Testament prophet Amos to show that God's plan has always been to provide one way of salvation for all people, Jews and Gentiles alike. It's one way for anybody to be saved. Jesus, as the, as the seed of David or the greater son of David, the long-awaited Davidic Messiah, is how God rebuilds the, the tent of David and saves both Jews and Gentiles alike. So James concludes in verses 19 to 21, after he gives the quote from Amos, he says, therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. The, those four things that he outlines there, the things about the blood and the sexual morality and, and idolatry, we're going to save that for our final point because it's going to be reiterated again. It's going to be repeated here in the text coming up. It's covered twice. But, but part of the, the conclusion in verse 19 was him saying to, to not trouble the Gentiles who turn to God. We must be cautious regarding deviations from the gospel. We also must be clear, also, also must be clear on what the gospel of Christ is, being saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. 
Church, that is a hill to die on. That is a number one in the theological tears. We must be just as clear about this, just as clear as possible about this one, that this is what we believe and this is what we preach. Souls are at stake and joy is at stake. I mean, three quick applications here about just thinking about being clear on that gospel message, having that clarity, pursuing that clarity, maintaining that clarity. One is this, always bring it back to Jesus. Always bring things back to Jesus. It's so easy in our evangelistic conversations to get hung up on other things. Not about you, but, but friends also want to, often want to, to talk about all kinds of, 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 of different topics and kind of things that are maybe connected to Christianity, especially in our day when there's so much overlap with political ideologies and with social agendas that can kind of muddy the waters. Be about Jesus. Be about Jesus. Always bring it back to Jesus. And that's what they're, the, 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 the clarity that we need, the clarity that we want to have is to, is to, is to show in our lives what are, the, what are the non-negotiables, what are the essentials. So yeah, we, we can talk about all this other stuff later if, 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 we, if we get to that, but first, what do we do with Jesus? Always bring it back to Jesus, to his death and resurrection. The second application that I would encourage is to, is to have an elevator speech about the gospel in your life. What I mean by that is just having a, 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 a kind of practicing the ability to tell your story and to tell it with gospel lenses. Practice telling your testimony in a way that, that highlights Jesus and the gospel. I, I love every time we have a baptism here, I just love hearing that over and over again, people's testimonies to the gospel of grace in their lives. I was convicted a, a number of years ago that I'd, I realized I'd been telling my testimony for, for years and, and hadn't really thought through this so that when I would tell my testimony to people, I, I, it would generally go along these lines. Yeah, yeah, listen to all the bad stuff I used to do. Uh, and then now I don't do all that bad stuff anymore. <laughs> and I realized I, I wasn't elevating Jesus. I was doing more time spending, spending more time talking about all this stuff I used to do and, and not majoring on what it was that God did in my life uh, through Christ and giving me a new heart and regenerating me and, and making me born again. And so having, having the ability in, in your conversations uh, with, with, uh, with coworkers or with friends or even church members to tell your story in such a way that you are making Jesus look big and highlighting the gospel and, and ensuring that that is a part of what it is that we're preaching and, and the, the, the kind of the crux of our message. Number three, third application is remember that Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. And Jesus plus anything is not the gospel. I talked earlier about groups that exist today that, that will say it's not just grace through faith, but it's adding these other things in. So we need to have, we need to have eyes to see that, certainly. But listen, there are other ways that we, maybe more informally or subtly, can functionally treat other things as requirements just through legalism in the Christian life. And you say, yeah, I, I know that we're, we're saved by grace through faith, but, but I feel like God loves me less because I haven't had my quiet time. I feel like God loves me less because I've fallen off the, the Bible reading plan that I was on. I feel like God loves me less because of church attendance. I feel like God loves me less be, because of uh, imperfections and, and purity. 
Again, all of these things are, are important things in the Christian lives, reading our Bible and prayer and church attendance and purity and all those kinds of things. But, but we can, through legalism in the Christian life, start to uh, subtly heap those things up as requirements for salvation or requirements that we know the love of God. God has shown you the love of God in Christ. The love of God is ours in Christ. And certainly he calls us to obedience and holiness, but let's not um, uh, have a view of those things that starts to insert those into uh, our Christian life in a way that is Jesus plus all this other stuff for salvation. All right, finally, be charitable. Be charitable. These are just the last few verses here in the text. James kind of wraps up his speech in verse 19. He says, therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble these Gentiles who turn from God, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has, been, has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. You may wonder why the exhortation to be charitable would be an appropriate one as we consider these final verses, but it has to do with the nature of this recommendation that's being made from the meeting in Jerusalem. So here we see James' recommendation from verse 20 then put into a letter form and sent with a delegation from Jerusalem back down to the church at Antioch that had originally been troubled by the whole ordeal. And so in verses 22 and 23, it says, Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. So they're going to send, choose these men, send them back down to Antioch. Let me just, just because I think this is important, let me just make a kind of a quick side note here. Do you see the first couple verses there where it says it seemed good to them? It seemed good to the apostles? Note that. Look also in verse 25. It seemed good to us having come to one accord. Look at verse 28. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden. I point that out because I, in my experience, I feel like people can sometimes have, uh, when they think of the book of Acts, can have an overly supernaturalized view of the book of Acts. Right? It's always God uh, leading uh, missionaries uh, through, through kind of uh, these Macedonian calls that are going on and blocking paths and opening these other doors in these miraculous ways. It's prison doors flying open through angels flying in and busting people out. It's people speaking in these languages that they never heard so that the gospel can go forth. It's these divinely directed, uh, directed movements of missionaries. It's miraculous healings and so on and so forth. And all of that's there. All of that's in the book of Acts. But you also see statements like this of God's people using revealed truth, God-given wisdom, and communal intelligence to make decisions. It says it three times in the text. It seemed good to us. <laughs> I sometimes think that, that we are frozen in our decision-making because we're waiting for God to kind of spell it out in like cloud writing of what we're supposed to do in our lives. When he, he said, what, what, what seems good to you? Again, not, not just you yourself, but, but looking at God's word, prayerfully considering it in the context of a community that's going to come together and consider these things together and then make a decision. Like the book that was written, just do something. All right, sidebar over. <laughs> I think it's an encouragement for our decision-making to, 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 to not be frozen when we have God's word and prayer and consideration and community. 
Well, the letter begins with those words. Now note that this was a letter written from the brothers in Jerusalem to the brothers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Now last week I had a map up on the screen and those, those so Antioch, uh, Syria, and Cilicia. Antioch is a city, Syria is a region, Cilicia is a region. And if you remember on the map, there was the, the little uh, curve around Tarsus to go down to Antioch. That's the region that we're talking about right here. You have Antioch, you have Syria, and you have Cilicia, this little corner. So this isn't all of the Christian world, it's this little thing. So these brothers in Jerusalem writing a letter to the brothers in Antioch and the surrounding region. And the reason, look at verse 24, the reason is quite clear in verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you. Do you get that? Again, this is going to be key for you understanding what is going on in Acts chapter 15. The reason they're writing this letter and the audience of this letter, it is from the, 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 the brothers in Jerusalem to the brothers in Antioch and the surrounding region. And the reason they give for why they're doing it is this, since people have gone out from us and troubled you. So this letter is from, the, the, the from us to the troubled you. I emphasize this because we want to be clear that this is not because the church of Jerusalem has some special power. This is not because the, the church of Jerusalem has some special hierarchical authority. It's not that the church in Jerusalem sees herself as making pronouncements over all of the Christian world. And they don't see themselves that way. They're writing a letter to the church in Antioch. It's not that the church in Antioch feels that they need Jerusalem to govern them or to rule over them. Hey, we have this decision to make. We can't make it in our own local church. We need to appeal to Jerusalem to make the decision for us. That's not what is going on here at all. That's why you may have noted in your, uh, your uh, bulletin that I call this the Jerusalem Consultation. Your Bible might say the Jerusalem Council. Uh, I'm borrowing this from, from Daryl Bach and his commentary on the book of Acts. He calls it the Consultation, and I think that's right. This was the Christians in the Church of Jerusalem writing a letter to the churches in and around Antioch because they had some weird teaching that trickled down there. So they didn't go to the church in Jerusalem because they were the doctrinal gatekeepers who decided things for everybody else. They went to the church in Jerusalem because that's where the goofballs came from who were spewing all kinds of nonsense. That's why they went to Jerusalem because they were the ones that had these guys walking around teaching all this weird stuff. Some people will use Acts 15 as proof that there should be a governing body outside of the local church to make a decision for a local church. Whether that's a presbytery, whether that's a synod, whether that's a conference, that there needs to be some sort of governing body outside of the local church that makes decisions for that local church. But listen, such authority is, is neither claimed in Acts 15 by Jerusalem nor sought by the church in Antioch. That's just not what's happening here. Now, those people who, who, who see those governing bodies have other reasons for that. It's not just Acts 15. But I certainly think when we look at Acts 15, that's not what's happening here. Rather, Jerusalem says, we heard that some folks from our church showed up at your church saying a bunch of stuff that they didn't get from us. And we wanted to write you a letter to clarify that that's not right and that we don't sign off on what they've been saying. So church A, warning, writing a letter to church B because church A had some troublemakers who were adversely affecting church B. That's it. That's the council. There wasn't a council in Jerusalem in the sense of a, you know, the Nicene council. They're going to make this proclamation that all these churches are going to try to follow. It was a consultation in Jerusalem. 
It was a second opinion in Jerusalem. It was a, y'all have lost your minds in Jerusalem. Well, here's what they tell them. Verses 28 and 29, kind of the the advice or the the counsel that they give him in, in verses 28 and 29. It has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. We saw this once already in James' recommendation up in verse 20, but there's four things here, right? So abstaining from things polluted by idols, abstaining from blood, abstaining from uh, food that has been strangled, abstaining from sexual immorality. These were all practices uh, with which they would have been familiar from their pagan background. Meat that was sold in the marketplace was often used in idol worship. Uh, Jews were careful about not consuming blood and, and the proper draining of blood, but the pagans had no such concerns. And when it talks about food that was strangled there, that's what that's talking about. It's food where the blood hasn't been properly strained when it was killed, or drained when it was killed. And then sexual immorality makes the list as well because they were coming from centuries of pagan practice that involved sexual immorality in their worship services, in their worship practices, not to mention all kinds of just laxity uh, uh, morally on restrictions on sexual misconduct in general. And so the letter offers an an exhortation as the gospel is pushing further and further into new communities. That's why he said earlier in the text, I don't think I commented on this, but he says, for for Moses has has, uh, been read in in, in all of these places. So everywhere that, that, uh, this is verse 21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And so what, what these guys are saying is they listen, as the gospel is pushing, you're going to find Jews out there all over the place. The gospel is going to be going into these Gentile communities, but there's also going to be Jews right beside them. So you guys need to be careful about what you're doing so that you're, you're charitable and you make accommodations for each other, making a clean break with your pagan past and making sure you are looking out for the good of other people in, your, in the way that you worship and the way you follow God. That's the recommendation. It's an exhortation as the gospel is pushing further into new communities as to how Jews and Gentiles can show charity and exist in a body together. How can you, you can make a clean break with some of those elements of your pagan past while acting with wisdom towards your Jewish brothers and sisters. Now note that the resolution, the resolution that they write in the letter doesn't have anything to do with the gospel. They, they, don't, they don't clarify the gospel here because everybody believed it. The gospel of, uh, of salvation by grace through faith in Christ, that doesn't even show up in the letter. It was assumed. That's what they believed. Rather, they give them some instructions about how to live charitably with other Christians. There's nothing in the statement about the gospel as, in, in the sense of clarifying what the gospel is. The advice they give is, is uh, that they're giving is how to maintain unity and engage cross-culturally when the gospel is going forth and different people are being saved and gathered into the same church. How do you act maturely and humbly and helpfully with each other? You don't have to obey Jewish laws to be saved, but there's still some things that would be wise, ways that you can be charitable as the gospel goes forth. And so these four things certainly weren't something, these aren't requirements that somebody must do to be saved. This isn't a, this isn't a, 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 a kind of a debate where they these guys believe this, these guys believe this, and okay, we're not going to make you do the whole Jewish law, but you do need to do these four things to be saved. That's not what's going on here. This isn't a compromise. It's not what's happening here. This is, this is them just giving advice on how they can best consider their Jewish brothers and sisters as the gospel continues to spread into non-Jewish communities. 
they know that not everything is the hill to die on. But wait, we're, we're able to eat this kind of food and this kind of, I, I know you are. Our advice to you is as the gospel is going forth in these communities, that you would have that in mind and you would be charitable there where you're able to. That's the advice that they give. Wanting them to have the interests of others in mind and know ways that we can serve by being charitable and maintaining unity among a diverse people. And friends, it's not just that we can show charity, but we must. We have a biblical responsibility to do it. It's a muscle that needs to be exercised. If any of us are going to take the gospel to people from different cultural backgrounds from us, whether it's international or in communities right across the street from us. You can avoid all of this and just flip from Acts 14 to Acts. You can, just, you can avoid all of this if we just don't take the gospel to people who aren't like us. But the assumption is that that's just not going to be the case for us. We're going to be constantly pushing the gospel into communities that don't look like us or sound like us or talk like us or have the same backgrounds as us. And when we do that, we need to be, we need to be clear on what the gospel is and we need to be charitable in things where we can be charitable. That's the argument. That's the message of Acts 15. So church, that's my encouragement to us this morning is to major on the gospel of grace. There is only one way to be saved. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ. Clinging to that, being cautious with things that would deviate from that gospel, being clear on what that gospel is and having that be our one message, and then being charitable in things that are non-essentials. Don't touch on that gospel essential message. Contend where you must. Show charity where you can. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do ask for your help. By your spirit, as we seek to share the gospel with others, would you give us discernment? Would you give us eyes to to see where we can, uh, where we need to be clearer, where we need to contend for certain things? Would you give us conviction where we're contending for the wrong things, where we need to show charity? God, help us as a church be people who are constantly pushing the gospel into further and further to the ends of the earth through good works that we're supporting in Scotland and other places around the world, seeing new communities impacted with the gospel of Christ. And would you use us, even today, and as we go out throughout this next week, to, to, to likewise see the gospel advance in communities right around us. God, give us a, a divine clarity of the gospel and charity with it as well, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.